You know, one of the most uh, fascinating automobile-related inventions of the last century has to be the cruise control. It's a technology, of course, that controls the very uh, speed of the automobile that we drive in. It's very common. Uh, this technology now is the very basis of autonomous cars, that is, cars operating safely without any direct human intervention. Not many know, though, that the gentleman who is responsible for the invention of cruise control was actually a blind mechanical engineer by the name Ralph Teeter. And when asked why he thought of this invention, uh, he gave two reasons for what sparked the idea for this invention. He said, firstly, around the Second World War, a 35 miles per hour speed limit was imposed in the U.S. Uh, to reduce gasoline use and tire wear. And secondly, he said he was frustrated by his driver's habit of speeding up and slowing down whenever he talked. And so he wanted to find a solution uh, that would allow an automobile to maintain a consistent and steady speed. Enter cruise control. Uh, the world hasn't been the same again. Now, there are advantages of a cruise control, uh, such as fuel efficiency and, and speed control. It can also, if not used correctly, encourage drivers to not pay attention when they need to. Or it may end up causing you to speed when you need to slow down. Uh, when the road appears clear, cruise control seems like a great idea for a car. It allows you to keep moving without any human intervention. But you know, what works for cars can really be a bad philosophy when it comes to the body of Christ and how it should function. When things are going great, spiritually speaking, as we think of the number of people coming to a church, even such as ours, or the number of people really growing, spiritually speaking, and... Uh, their passion and the intensity which they bring and the commitment which they bring to serving each other, even when things are growing, going great, spiritually speaking, there can be a temptation to go into a cruise control mode, uh, letting things happen without feeling the need to intervene. In the text that we have in front of us today, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 to 12, uh, Paul is actually exhorting and encouraging the believers in Thessalonica not to fall for the temptation of getting into a cruise control mode. They're not to assume that just because things have been great, uh, that they can now sit back and relax, but that they need to still do more, that they need to excel still more. In a growing and a mature church, uh, there can be a temptation to get into this autopilot or cruise control mode. And Paul is saying to them... And he says to us today, don't fall for it. Now we're continuing our study through this letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the church in Thessalonica, written around AD 51. And Paul's focus in this letter, as we began the series last fall, is to put on display what a model church looks like. Now what does a model church look like? Well, there is a gratitude for God's work in others when you identify it. The word is received with eager anticipation. Uh, there is an, a desire to imitate godly leaders and the Lord as well. And there is an exemplary reputation with other believers. Uh, the, the gospel is proclaimed verbally and it is lived out practically. 
Now, Paul even offers a prayer of exhortation at the end of the first section. In chapter 3, this is what he writes from verse 11. Uh, This is his prayer for the believers at Thessalonica. Now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct your way to you, direct our way to you, rather, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, uh, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In chapters 4 and 5, he then moves to practical exhortation. Uh, In the last two weeks, we considered this last aspect of Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, which is that uh, focus on living holy lives. And Paul uh, drives home the importance of spiritual growth and then zones in on living a sexually pure life in a perverse world, which is what we considered last Sunday. In in today's text, which concludes this section on directions for spiritual growth, he focuses on what does our faith in action look like in the context of love in the body of Christ. What does faith in action look like in the context of love in the body of Christ? When we say we love each other in the body of Christ, what are some ways in which it manifests itself? And towards what end should we continue to grow in our love for each other? Those are questions that Paul answers in these four verses. And so I've titled our lesson for tonight, Faith in Action. Faith in Action. If I had to summarize our lesson, it would be this. We love biblically by striving to grow in our love and by working hard at living responsible lives. We love biblically by striving to grow in our love and by working hard at living responsible lives, not only to please God, but to achieve a good reputation for Christ's church and his people. That's a summary of our lesson for tonight. So read with me verse 9 to verse 12. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Uh, For indeed you do practice it toward all brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and to work with your own hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need." Uh, Paul gives us three aspects of what faith in action looks like. Uh, First of all, the context for faith in action, verse 9, and the early part of verse 10. Paul is essentially answering his own prayer that he had offered in chapter 3, verse 12. Remember, he had said, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. What is that? That is brotherly Love, he says. Love for one another. He uses a Greek word called Philadelphia, a word that is familiar to us. Now, chronologically speaking, this is the first time the word is used in the New Testament. Uh, we know that Paul has used this word also in the, book of, in the letter that he wrote to the Romans. And in the Bible, that letter comes before the letter to the, first Thess- to the Thessalonians. But chronologically speaking, 
Uh, this letter comes before the letter of Romans, and in that sense, this is the first occurrence of that word. Uh, the word is a combination of two words, uh, phileo, meaning love, and adelphos, meaning brother, and literally means the love of or love for brothers. Now, before Paul's use of this word in the Christian context, this word was commonly used in the Greek world to refer to love shared among siblings. That's why it's Philadelphia. Paul takes that word and he applies it to the family of God. Now, those who are a part of the family of God call upon God as their father. And so, if you call upon the one true God as your heavenly father, and I do the same... What that makes us is that it makes us a part of the same family. Therefore, brotherly love. Now, we don't call each other brothers and sisters because we don't remember each other's names. No, we call each other brothers and sisters because we are part of the same family of God. It describes the love which believers cherish for each other as the body of Christ. In that sense, and also because the letter is written to the church, we know that it includes brothers and sisters. What a glorious reality that is. Uh, that person who is from another state or another country or another continent who calls upon the God of the Bible as their heavenly father is a brother, is a sister in Christ. Now, we may look different and we may talk differently, but the reality of our spiritual condition is the same. Uh, what is true about you is true about them. The same Holy Spirit that resides in you is the same Holy Spirit that resides in them as well. What more can we say about brotherly love? Well, brotherly love, John writes in his epistle, is actually an evidence of spiritual life. It's an evidence of us being born again. In our series on 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we were reminded this is what John writes. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Now, what is love? Uh, love is not based on emotions, but it's an act of the will. It is a self-sacrifice and deliberate active love. Uh, to love someone with God's love is to promote that person's best interests. It's to actively work not to harm, but to bring good to that person. And that's what love is. And John is saying that that's an evidence of the fact that you're born again. Not only is it is an evidence of our being born again, brotherly love is also an evidence of true discipleship. Now, that is, love among brothers and sisters in Christ is evidence of the fact that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Our Lord himself will remind us in John chapter 13, he would say in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, that is your love for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Brotherly love then is an evidence of our being born again it's an evidence of our being disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is to that topic now Paul turns as he writes in verse 9. And he says, now as to the love of the brethren. Uh, clearly this is a change of focus because a new paragraph begins here. 
but very much in line with spiritual growth that he has been emphasizing and talking about from verse 1. Regarding this, he says, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Now, in, in grammar, this is called, uh, it's a rhetorical device. It's called paralipsis, and which is when a writer mentions something and to the reader comes across as though they're going to pass over that topic, but they don't. In doing so, they draw home the point in a very powerful way. Now, we do that sometimes when we interact with each other. We say, you know, I don't want to say this, but, and then we say what we don't want to say and draw attention to what we do want to say. And so that's what Paul is doing here. And the love among brethren is the context in which these verses occur. Uh, there are two reasons he gives why there is no need for anyone to write to them about brotherly love. Oh, what are those two reasons? Notice verse 9. He says, first of all, you are taught by God to love one another. Literally, you are God-taught. Uh, Paul comes up with a new word in Greek by combining two words, God and teaching. And he says, you're taught about love, loving one another by God himself. And the question is, where did God teach them about love for one another? Remember, he's writing to the church at Thessalonica. It's very likely that this church is made up of Jewish believers or people having a Jewish background. If that's the case, then Paul may be thinking of Leviticus 19.18, where it's recorded, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it could be that Paul is thinking about this particular chapter. Another possibility is that he may be referring to a Lord's command that I just referred to in John chapter 13, verse 34, where he clearly teaches a new command I give to you, love one another. Now, regardless of which instance he's thinking about, clearly Paul is driving the point that none other than Lord himself, either through the living word or through the written word, has taught you to love one another. If that's the case, what more can I add as a further motivation to you? Remember, he is providing a context within which he will give a series of exhortations in the next few verses. And so he says, not only are you God-taught, and secondly, he says, he gives a second reason, you're already practicing brotherly love. Uh, you have no need for me to write to you about this because you're taught by God himself and you're already practicing what I'm referring to here as brotherly love. Now, how does he know that they're already practicing brotherly love? Because in chapter 3, remember, uh, Timothy has come to Paul with a report about what's happening at this church and he has brought good news of their faith and love, verse 6 in chapter 3. And there are many ways in which they had already practiced brotherly love. And one way in which they had practiced brotherly love was in caring for the financial needs of the churches. Now, you don't have to turn there, but Paul refers to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In verse 1 to verse 5, Paul writes, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. 
begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints, and this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. How were they practicing brotherly love? By going beyond their abilities in being generous in supporting the churches in that area. And so not only are you taught by God about brotherly love, but you're already practicing brotherly love. And so you can say to Paul, Paul, okay, you have our attention. This is about brotherly love. It's about genuinely loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. How is it seen then in the life of a believer? How is such a love displayed? And here he provides for us four positive exhortations to display brotherly love. Now remember in last week's section of scripture that we looked at, he gave exhortations in the negative abstain from sexual immorality, or don't lust, or don't transgress and defraud your brother. And now he provides positive exhortations. What are those exhortations? There are four in total as we consider them, the exhortations for faith in action. First of all, he says, excel in love of the brethren. Excel in love of the brethren. Notice at the end of verse 10. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. These are all four infinitives. He says, we urge you to excel still more. And notice the number of times he repeats the use of the word brethren. It's come in for the first time at the beginning of verse 9. And then he alludes to it and implies it at the end of verse 9 again. And then in, twice in verse 10. Uh, the word there translated as urge is used uh, to mean also to call one alongside, to join them in the same goal, to summon someone. It is also sometimes translated as to exhort them or to excite someone or encourage someone in a particular direction. It was used to exhort and encourage troops in those times. Uh, a Greek historian recorded the struggle of a military regiment which had lost all hope and was utterly dejected. And the story goes that this general sends a leader to come alongside these downcast troops in such a way that their courage was reborn and a body of despirited men became fit for heroic action. That is the idea here. It is men as an exhortation, an encouragement. You're doing this, Paul says, but what I want you to do is I want you to excel still more. Now this is the third time he uses this particular expression as he presses his point further. The first time it was a part of his prayer in chapter 3, verse 12. A second time, remember, at the beginning of this section, he wants them to excel in pleasing God, verse 1. And now for the third time, he says, excel in brotherly love. Now, in encouraging them to excel still more, Paul is saying, you're doing well, Thessalonians, but don't go into an autopilot or a cruise control mode now. Now, those may be great options while flying or driving a car, but not so much when it comes to being a follower of Christ. Uh, excel still more. Don't put your guard down. Uh, don't to take your foot off the pedal, as we would say here. Love for the brethren is the context in which our faith is seen in action, uh, but we need to still excel still more. Also, in exhorting them to excel still more, uh, there's a subtle warning there for the Thessalonians and for you and for me, and it is this, when it comes to our spiritual life, there is always a scope for improvement. 
Uh, therefore, we are not to think or, or behave as we have arrived. Don't think your sanctification is complete. No, it's an ongoing work of God in your life. It began at the moment of salvation, and it continues to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Paul says, excel still more. A second exhortation, he writes, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Notice at the beginning of verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now in its first reading, this exhortation actually comes across as a paradox. Uh, that is, he's exhorting them to lead a quiet life. A quiet life suggests uh, calmness or peace or serenity. But he says here, make it your ambition, which is to, uh, which is to say, apply diligent effort to lead a quiet life. Uh, in other words, become all stirred up about being quiet. You know, to be ambitious is to strive or to seek after honor. Restlessly eager about pursuing something. Uh, Paul is saying, be, be zealous, be striving eagerly, and even consider it an honor to do so. What is the quiet life marked by? It's really marked by inner peace, peace that comes with the right relationship with God to begin with. Paul is saying, strive after that kind of life, one that is inwardly calm and orderly. Now, here's another way to understand what a quiet life is by looking at what it is not. The opposite of quiet, really, is to be noisy, is to be boisterous. Uh, this is a person who always likes to be heard, but seldom makes an effort to hear others. Uh, this is an attention-seeking person. He or she wants to always be at the center of everything. They want to be the life of the party in every party. The question then is, uh, why does Paul mention this? Why does Paul call them to be ambitious about leading a quiet life? Well, one hint is, in his, found in his second letter, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. He says there were some who were re living an unruly life, uh, and someone that is living an undisciplined kind of life. And perhaps that undisciplined life is found in a seed form at the moment that Paul writes his first letter, but it seems that they have not heeded that instruction from Paul, and so he has to come back to it in his second letter. And so it could be unruly life or an undisciplined life. But another reason Paul addresses this here could be because some people had become restless about the coming of Christ or the return of Christ. Now, if you remember the first lesson, this is kind of the underlying theme of this particular letter. In fact, in every chapter, Paul uh, has a reference to the return of Christ. And it may be that in anticipation of Christ's return, and because he has not yet returned, that the Thessalonians were growing anxious and restless. Now Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, thinking about those things. Not only that, there is an extremely practical advice that Paul is giving here. You see, in those early few days of Christianity, when someone became a follower of Christ, it was often followed by a public outcry, as you will read in the book of Acts, on mistreatment, violence, and even persecution. And Paul has mentioned about believers suffering before in this letter itself. For example, in verse 6 of chapter 1, he talks about suffering. And so by telling them to make it their goal to live a quiet life, 
by keeping a low profile, they would avoid further trouble for themselves. This is extremely practical advice. Now, bringing that to the world that you and I live in, you know, we live in a very noisy world. If you're honest, there's too much noise in the world we live in. I mean, in fact, there's a push against living a quiet life. You cannot see a TV screen and watch news without being informed of 10 other things running around at the same time on the same screen. I mean, there's, of course, the host himself or herself. Then there are main news topics and headlines uh, with a lower third channel logo, uh, channel uh, uh, description of weather and all of that, a news sticker and a time clock and information even of a stock market. I mean, there's a push for us to live a noisy life. As I think of even the world of social media that we all live in, there's a temptation to not live a quiet life, and it is so strong. I mean, does, really, does everyone really need to know what you had for breakfast and lunch and, and dinner? I mean, does everyone really need to know your opinion on everything that is happening around the world? There is this push then to live a noisy life. And Paul is saying, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. Now here's a simple application. Make everything in your life about God. Make it your goal to please him in all respects. And make him the center of your life. Put all your efforts in making sure that the spotlight is on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make John the Baptist's ambition your ambition. What did he say? He must increase, but I must decrease. Now make John's testimony your testimony. Remember in John chapter 10, verse 40 and 41, as people considered John's life, they said about him, many came to him and were saying, it says, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, was true. What a great testimony to have. Everything uh, that this man said, he or she did not perform any miracles, but everything that they said about Jesus Christ is true. In such a noisy world, Paul's exhortation to the Thessalonians and to us living in the 21st century world is clear. Make it your ambition, make it your goal, aim to live a quiet life. As a, uh, thirdly, he says, attend to your own business. Notice verse 11 in the middle. Attend to your own business. This is Paul's third exhortation, which is really a polite way of saying, mind your own business. You and I are loving our brothers and sisters in Christ when we attend to our own business. Uh, to attend to means to be occupied with or to practice. It's in the present tense here, which is to say, make it your daily practice or make it a lifestyle to take care of your own business. Our Lord calls such a person one who is taking care of his own business, a faithful and a sensible steward. In Luke chapter 12, verse 42 and 43, he says, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? A blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. When you and I are minding our own business, we are focused on what the Lord has for you and for me. 
Here's another way to understand, and it's by looking at what it does not mean, or the opposite of it. To not mind your own business is to really be nosy about everybody else's business. It's to be snooping around what is happening in another person's life. Uh, this is a person who's trying to be involved in other person's or people's business when their own affairs are not in order. It's to always have a critical attitude about what others are doing or not doing. It's to gossip about others. Now, don't, don't, don't get this exhortation wrong. The text is not saying don't help people or don't come to their aid when they need help. We are, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to look out for others. Uh, we are to help our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verse 16, do not neglect doing good and sharing, for, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. In Luke chapter 6, verse 30, it says, give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. In John chapter 15, verse 13, the Lord would say, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And so what Paul is exhorting us to do here is to attend to your own concerns and don't interfere in the affairs of others. It's not to neglect your business. It is to be focused on what God has called you to be and to do. There's plenty to keep us busy in our own business. When you don't take the time to attend to your business, it's very likely that you're meddling in business that is not your own. Now, Peter has a strong warning about this. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15, Peter writes this. He says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. And then he adds this, or a troublesome meddler. He's putting together a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, and a meddler in the same sentence. It is a serious thing to be meddling in other people's business. D. Edmund Hebert writes this. He says, they are to serve God by a faithful performance of their own individual tasks. It is a warning against meddlesomeness in the affairs of others. While having a proper concern for the needs of the brethren, they must avoid the ne neglect of their personal affairs. Let them have the habit of attending to their own interests and responsibilities. Excel still more in brotherly love. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business. And then fourthly and finally, work with your own hands. Work with your own hands. Notice at the end of verse 11. And work with your hands just as we commanded you. Now this is a way of saying, have a way for providing for yourself. Uh, regularly in consistently tell our single adults, keep, get a job and keep it unless it is abundantly clear that you need to move somewhere else. Uh, just to remind us of the context, you and I are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we provide for ourselves, you are displaying a genuine love for them. When we care for our needs by working, we are actually loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, the phrase Paul uses here is an interesting one. He says, Work with your hands. It implies a manual labor. It's interesting that he exhorts them to work with their hands because the Thessalonians, remember, they were wealthy people. 
In fact, they had been financially very generous, and so it's very likely that they own businesses. So you have to ask yourself, why did Paul have to exhort them to work with their own hands? It's possible, again, connected with the coming of the Lord, that there might be a growing group of people in the church who were saying, the Lord will return, and return quickly, and so they stopped working. The Lord was coming back, so why work at all? And what that did was it increased an unhealthy way of depending on the generosity of other believers in the church. And the church is financially strong, they said, they're going to support me, so why work at all? Paul is saying, no, work with your hands, just as we commanded you. Now, there could be another reason why Paul specifically mentions working with hands. To understand this, we have to keep the cultural context in mind. You see, manual labor or working with hands was regarded as degrading, as something that slaves and servants did. It was not something that those who were free got involved in. And so it's surprising that Paul mentions, work with your hands. This is what we commanded. You ought to work, and if needed, you ought to work with your hands, which is to say we ought to do everything we can to provide for ourselves and for those God has given uh, to us to take care of. Uh, In fact, one commentator writes that in exhorting the Thessalonians to work with their hands, Paul is actually dignifying manual labor. Do everything you can so that you can provide for your family. Now, we have to work for a number of reasons. A work allows us to care for our own needs. A work allows us to care for those who are under our care. A work allows us to give to those who are in need. Isn't it to the Ephesians that Paul would say, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. You see, failing to provide for our families, failing to work when we can work, in fact, Paul says it makes us worse than an unbeliever. In his letter to Timothy, Paul would say, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Uh, To the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, Paul will tell them that he himself has been an example of what it is to work. He says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now don't get Paul's exhortation wrong. It is possible that there are times when we need assistance from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, That is why we give towards benevolence, uh, so that we can come alongside a brother or a sister who needs help. It's also possible sometimes to need uh, to reach out for assistance from the government. What Paul is really saying here is don't make it a practice to live off of welfare, especially when you can work. Work with your hands if needed, but take responsibility to provide for your family. Now, the text is not saying everybody in the family needs to work. It is saying that everybody ought to do their part. Of course, there are children who are little in age, and they are dependent on their parents, and that is understandable. 
What Paul is saying is that if you are capable of working, work. Everybody ought to do their part. What does a person who can work but does not work do? Well, they act like busy bodies. They live, on un, they live an undisciplined life. They, do, they stop doing good. And Paul really has a very stern warning for such people. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, if you're not willing to work, then you're not to eat either. If you're not willing to work, then you're not to eat either. Paul says this is our command and our instruction. In fact, when a person refuses to work when they can work, Paul actually writes in his second letter that this is also a grounds for church discipline. Now listen to what he says. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Work with your hands, just as we commanded you, says Paul. What is to be our attitude when we work? In his another letter in Colossians chapter 3, he says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And so as you go to work this week, we have to remind ourselves that we're not working for our boss. Yes, in one sense we are. If you have a boss, you are working for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's four exhortations for us as we put that in the context of brotherly love are these. Excel still more in your love for the brethren. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend to your business. Work with your hands. We might be tempted to ask, why, Paul? What would that lead to? That brings us to the third and final aspect of faith in action. And here Paul gives us two purposes as he states for us the purpose for faith in action. It begins with the word, so that. Notice verse 12. So that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. There are two purposes that he gives for brotherly love and how that manifests itself. First of all, he says, you are able to maintain your testimony before unbelievers. So that you will behave properly towards unbelievers. That is, how you live will have an impact on a world that is watching you. You're, you have brothers and sisters in Christ that are on the inside, that is, who are a part of the body of Christ. So those who are on the outside are, not, are those who are not of the fellowship. These are unbelievers. And when you excel still more in brotherly love, when you lead a quiet life, when you attend to your business, when you work with your hands, then you're not only loving brothers and sisters in Christ, you're also placing yourself in the best possible position when it comes to sharing the gospel with your unbelieving friends, neighbors, co colleagues at work, relatives who do not know Christ. You're placing yourself in the best possible position to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with them. Imagine a person who comes to fix a plumbing issue in your house, and they have heard you talk disparagingly about others or talk about others in a way that clearly shows that you're gossiping about them. And at the end of the day, you get ready to share the gospel with them. Are they really going to trust you to share about the truth when all they have heard from you are comments about others that 
you should not be mentioning things about them about? Paul says, absolutely not. And so the purpose is, first of all, that we maintain our testimony before unbelievers, but secondly, so that you may be independent, or what he writes here, not be in any need. Now, that is, you may not be in any need. You see, when you follow Paul's instructions and exhortations, it places you in the best possible position to not be dependent on fellow believers when you don't need to. It, al- it allows you to be truly independent and not burden fellow believers unnecessarily. And when that happens, you're even able to support those people who really need your help. Brotherly love. Uh, the context for our faith in action, a brotherly love. The exhortations for faith in actions he provides for for us. He says, excel still more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life to attend to your own business and to work with your hands. And when you do that, you will maintain your testimony before unbelievers and you will be independent. What is most spiritual is also so very practical. What a great truth this is. Do all of this so that you will have your testimony before others. You will not bring shame on the church before others and so that you place yourself in the best possible position to be independent or not dependent on fellow believers. May God give us the strength and the wisdom and the courage to do just that. And like I mentioned at the beginning, even as we think of ourselves in a church such as the one that we are in, and the Lord knows my heart in this, one of the joys of being a part of a church such as this is to watch the growth, the spiritual growth, and to see the maturity of believers that you're surrounded with. And to see them passionately be committed to serving each other. And Paul is exhorting us in these last four verses not to get into a cruise control mode. Uh, Rather, uh, keep your guard up. Uh, Keep excelling still more. We close our time in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks with such clarity and with such practicality. And that we can take this and we can apply it to our lives. Lord, help us to grow in our love for each other. Help us to excel still more. Help us to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to our own business and to work with our hands. And Lord, when we do that, we know from your word that we will have a testimony to talk about as we share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we would not be unnecessarily dependent on our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we do those things, we are truly loving them as you have taught us to love them. So help us to do just that. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.